This week on Making Contact. The Obama administration, as you know, many of your listeners know, deported many more people than any other administration in American history. But a lot of those deportations were accomplished through going through the police and probation departments and jails, and slightly less through coming to people's homes. Now that we're in the new administration, it's hard to know what to expect, but I think it's fair to assume that some of the tactics that were much more widespread during the Bush administration could come back. 11 million plus. That's the estimated number of people living in the U.S. who are undocumented. In this show, we'll look to previous administrations to see how they treated people who are undocumented and how immigrant movements of the past responded. I'm Monica Lopez. One of the first executive orders that Donald Trump has made as president is aimed at defunding sanctuary cities. Here, Trump describes his plans for reshaping immigration policy to a crowd of people that includes immigration officers. The Secretary of Homeland Security, working with myself and my staff, will begin immediate construction of a border wall. Our order also does the following, ends the policy of catch and release at the border, requires other countries to take back their criminals, cracks down on sanctuary cities, empowers ICE officers to target and remove those who pose a threat to public safety, calls for the hiring of another 5,000 Border Patrol officers calls for the tripling the number of ICE officers. Trump's sanctuary order also denies federal funding to what it calls sanctuary jurisdictions and mandates immigration and customs enforcement officers to prioritize deportations. The order really hits home in Los Angeles. Census Bureau estimates put L.A. County's population at over 10 million people. That's bigger than the populations of most states. And over 800,000 of those L.A. County residents are undocumented. Along with the new mandates, the January 25th executive order reminds immigrants that they continue to be a political target. Municipalities nationwide have flat-out declared themselves sanctuary cities, but many haven't, and the policies of hundreds of towns, cities, and counties across the country could mark them as one of those sanctuary jurisdictions. For one thing, their police forces and other agencies don't identify the undocumented and hand them over to authorities for deportation, as demanded by the executive order. Los Angeles is one of those cities. There, reporter Bobby Murray sat down with two leaders of the immigrant and civil rights movements. Los Angeles has a strong tradition of sanctuary. Its roots go back to at least the 1980s. That's when U.S.-backed wars in Central America sent hundreds of thousands of refugees north through Mexico and thousands landed here with no legal status. Many had no place to go. Father Richard Estrada was one of those who welcomed them into his church. 1984 is is, uh, when we launched the sanctuary movement at La Placita here in Los Angeles. Anyway, there were several churches and temples that uh, came together. La Placita Olvera is one of L.A.'s most historic churches and a powerful symbol in the Latino Catholic community and beyond. During the 1980s, Estrada, along with Father Luis Olivares, who was then the pastor, 
made the church a center for Central American refugees. They celebrated masses that spoke to the fears and uncertainty and offered meals and support. They opened La Placita as a sanctuary and set up a network and support system for those who entered. People bundled up to sleep in pews and courtyards. The, it looked like this. When we said sanctuary, we mean they are welcome here. And this is a safe place. They can come here and uh, be at peace, safe. We will protect them. We will provide, you know, the, not only their uh, spiritual needs, but uh, their uh, morale and, and, and their social and legal situation. And then we said the doors to the church are open all night. You know, uh, they can uh, sleep here. They can actually be here. And the authorities cannot come in. Sanctuary is not an easy thing. It's all about relations. It's all about us, you know, welcoming the stranger and having a plan and so forth. Angelica Salas has a plan, and it's all about resistance and sanctuary. Salas has been executive director of CHIRLA, the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights of Los Angeles, since 1999. Salas joined CHIRLA's staff just months after the November 1994 elections that saw California voters approve Prop 187. That ballot measure moved to block the undocumented from health care and education. But the election results panicked the immigrant communities and made them feel like targets. CHIRLA set up a hotline. When we were picking up phone calls of people who were crying on the phone because of Prop 187, who thought their children were going to be picked up at the schools, who, you know, that's the kind of reality that we're living now for this country. That's what we lived in in California. But instead of acting, um, there was fear, but then there was an action plan. And I think we really took an action plan that was political. That was like, okay, we've got to become citizens. We have to register to vote. We have to get activated. And I think that was like unions and organizations, et cetera. And I, I'm hopeful that, that that our California Prop 187 reaction as a progressive movement is the kind of national reaction we're going to have. Sanctuary, the protection of individuals and rights, is critical to that transformation. It's not an abstract issue. A teenager came to Chirla and later became a volunteer. Part of the reason she got involved was because her mom was undocumented. Um, ICE came to their door. They didn't open the door, but her mom was being, um, there was an investigative unit and she had a deportation order. So she, the um, ICE came to her door to pick her up, you know, take her away. And so they didn't open the door, um, the mom hid. And so what ended up happening was that the mom decided to leave, you know, the husband and the child um, behind, I think it was like with an aunt, to um, protect the kids. But she decided, you know, like many people who are being sought after to go somewhere else. Well, ICE felt like, okay, this little girl must be in contact with her mom. So let's follow her um, to see if we can find the mom. So this young woman would uh, talked about how they would follow her and they would follow her every day from her home all the way to her school and do this like in the morning and the afternoon in case that following her would lead them to her mom and so these are the kind of things we know and so therefore I feel like what has happened which I think is wonderful is that the moral obligation that faith institutions felt they had has been extended to others to say no, it's not just your churches and your um, and your um, houses of worship. It has to be. It ha 
Sanctuary can also be afforded by schools, um, by whole cities, by whole states, um, in order to protect those who are being persecuted uh, and who, for whom who others want to punish in such a severe way for simply being undocumented. The city of Los Angeles has not declared itself a sanctuary city, but has collaborated with the County of Los Angeles and philanthropic groups to create the $10 million LA Justice Fund to provide legal help to those facing deportation. What it is, usually from the side of, of any anti-immigrant, any city that basically makes decisions to um, not detain individuals with their police force for being undocumented automatically qualifies them to be sanctuaries. Much of the threatened federal money flows through states, counties, and school districts, making a cutoff a complex process. And there's litigation potential. San Francisco recently filed a lawsuit naming Donald J. Trump the defendant. It cited the potential loss of $1.2 billion in annual federal funding. Other jurisdictions are certain to mount legal challenges against federal attacks on their funding. The Trump administration uses the expression sanctuary, but as yet hasn't exactly defined what sanctuary means. So that's why this whole sanctuary city, who's a sanctuary city, defined by us is, you know, a city that protects the rights of immigrants and refugees and LGBTQ and Muslim community. You know, so this is happening all over the country and that now there's more model policies that are being shared. And every day um, that goes by, there's a new campus or a new school that's actually made a sanctuary pledge or there are cities. The first thing we're saying is that what Trump wants to do is unacceptable. The second thing that we're saying in, in, all, you know, in all the cities and our schools is basically making a statement of our values. And our values are ones that we're gonna protect people's rights. We're gonna protect, these are valuable um, citizens of our city, they're residents of our city, there's contributors, and we're going to use our power to protect them. We're also gonna stand up against the policies that have been announced by Trump. And we are gonna fight them even if they designate us sanctuary, you know, sanctuary cities for the purposes of not giving us resources. We're actually standing up. The circle of churches and synagogues that Father Estrada worked with in the sanctuary movement in the 1980s is reinvigorated. The circle now includes mosques. Trump's actions appear to have boosted energy in a newer, younger, and broader sanctuary movement that respects and protects a range of people. Everyone knows they're in it for the long haul. For Making Contact, this is Bobby Murray in Los Angeles. You're listening to 11 Million Undocumented, a look at sanctuary and immigrant policy in the Trump era on Making Contact. To find out more about this week's show, check out our website at radioproject.org, sign up for our podcast, or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Coming up, we'll hear from a Boston-based activist on his experience as a dreamer and a conversation with the Center for Constitutional Rights and Immigrant Defense Project about their online report on ICE raids and community arrests. Mi nombre es Charlie Beck. Soy el jefe de la policía. It is this department's policy that all persons, regardless of immigration status, have the right to protection under the Constitution of the United States, and that officers not initiate contact solely for the purpose of discovering a person's immigration status. What the LA police chief said about their policy is true. 
But in the end, as is the case in L.A. and other municipalities, it's the county sheriff's department that runs the jail and ultimately cooperates with ICE to hand over inmates. L.A. County places strict limits on ICE's access to inmates under California law, to people who have committed more serious offenses. Other states have taken a different approach in how much access ICE agents are given to inmates and even in participation in home raids. The Immigrant Defense Project, Center for Constitutional Rights, and the Hispanic Interest Coalition of Alabama filed a Freedom of Information Act request in 2013. The group's report says the FOIA request was about ICE and the Department of Homeland Security's tactic of arresting immigrants at their homes, often without judicial warrants. I spoke with Mizua Izeki, Deputy Director of the Immigrant Defense Project, and Gita Schwartz, staff attorney for the Center for Constitutional Rights, about their research. We received a number of very interesting uh, documents, both in terms of the training of ICE agents and the guidelines for how ICE agents were to conduct arrests, enforcement actions, and raids. Uh, Among the most interesting things that we received um, were guidelines for ICE on how to lie to people when trying to arrest them, particularly at their homes. Uh, These are called ruses in ICE parlance. And for the most part, when ICE comes to people's homes to arrest them, they do not have warrants signed by a judge. They must come into the home with consent from a resident. Uh, and legally, there's a lot of questions about whether those that's really consent. If you are lying to someone to get into the, their home, they're not really giving you valid consent to enter their home and conduct the arrest. Uh, so that that's really a major focus of the legal part of our report. In Alabama in, um, I believe, December of 2010, uh, there was a series of raids in which ICE came to people's homes, pounded on the door, barged in without consent, absolutely without warrants that are required by the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, uh, and arrested a number of people, often not the people that they were supposedly targeting. So activists in Alabama and people who suffered these raids uh, made a range of different complaints to ICE about the conduct of the ICE agents. ICE didn't have warrants, therefore, you know, per the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, which protects everyone on American soil, they were supposed to come in with consent. And the allegations from the community were that as a matter of practice, they came in without consent, either by using ruses, force, um, or just barging in and intimidating people to open the door. So uh, one of the things that the FOIA was supposed to do was to get at how did these raids happen, um, what was ICE's plan, what were some of the complaints that ICE uh, received as a result of this attack on the community, and uh, why was nothing done about it. That series of events was part of what generated the FOIA to try to get at some of those documents. Uh, And as we developed the FOIA, we realized we wanted to have a clearer picture of how the Obama administration was conducting these home raids. Home raids have been around for a long time. Uh, They were very, very uh, utilized during the Bush administration, often through mass sweeps. And in the Obama administration, they flew slightly more under the radar, Uh, but they were still happening. And um, they were still traumatizing to many communities, and they were still skirting, if not outright violating, constitutional requirements. You know, I'm wondering if you could speak to the changes that that you all have seen through the past two administrations, 
coming into this new administration. Both of our organizations and, and many, many organizations throughout the country were very, very involved in combating ICE raids in the Bush administration, which in the second term really took a turn toward very visible, very massive, very indiscriminate raids. So typical set of raids happened in Long Island, uh, out in the suburbs of New York City, uh, where ICE purportedly had identified targets, but they were so loose about where their targets were or, or who was living with them that they would come into a home supposedly looking for for example, a 48-year-old man, uh, but they would arrest everybody in the home ranging from 18 to 60, uh, who was a male who couldn't produce documentation when they swarmed in. Uh, and in many cases, um, they would barge in, do enormous physical damage to the home, I mean, do everything that looked like consent was not properly provided. And in the aftermath of those series of raids all over the country, there was an enormous amount of legal action and public action and organizing action that really made some change. In Long Island, in Nassau County, the Nassau County executive stopped letting the police cooperate with ICE if they were going to be nakedly violating the Constitution when coming into people's homes. Uh, there were massive settlements, uh, financial settlements for people who had suffered through the raids, including many lawful permanent residents, many citizens, many children who were, you know, absolutely traumatized by the conduct of ICE agents. And those had an effect. The Obama administration certainly did not cease coming to homes to arrest people, but it appeared that they were doing a lot less of what's what was called collateral arrests, meaning arresting people other than the target they supposedly had named. Uh, the Obama administration, as you know, many of your listeners know, deported many more people than any other administration in American history. But a lot of those deportations were accomplished through going through the police and probation departments and jails, and slightly less through coming to people's homes. Uh, now that we're in the new administration, it's hard to know what to expect. But um, I think it's fair to assume that some of the tactics of the Bush administration that were much more popular and widespread during the Bush administration could come back. The only thing that I would add, this is Mizue, is, you know, where the government has been successful in the past is drawing lines between which uh, immigrants are worthy or deserve protection and deserve the right to stay. And that was a lot of our work in the last administration is pushing back on this idea that just because you have had contact with the criminal justice system, that you therefore deserve the consequence of being detained and deported. And, the, uh, you know, part of what we're trying to do in all of our work, but also in the toolkit, is to expose a system that legitimates this widespread criminalization and punishment of, uh, you know, many of our communities. Gide Schwartz and Mizue Aizeki spoke to me from New York. Immigrants of all backgrounds have historically been vulnerable to mistreatment by an unaccepting U.S. culture. But undocumented immigrants are even more vulnerable. Without papers, they're an easy political target and constantly at risk of exploitation and deportation. Children and young people are especially impacted. Dreamers and the Obama administration's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals helped change the game for undocumented youth. Now some are engaged adults who are working to raise awareness about education and immigrant rights. Making Contact producer Anita Johnson has more. Carlos Rojas Alvarez and his mother arrived in the U.S. on temporary tourist visas. He was only four. 
His family was desperate to escape the violence that plagued his native country of Medellin, Colombia. They soon found themselves planting roots in East Boston within a very diverse Latino community. For years, Carlos enjoyed a comfortable existence in the U.S., free from the violence that he and his family once fled. It wasn't until his 10th grade year that the realities of being undocumented really set in. It was around the 10th grade that I started really panicking about how I was going to go to college without papers. And I looked around me and I said, I work just as hard as my peers. I do just as many extracurriculars as my peers. I deserve to go to college like my peers. And was becoming more conscious of the fact that I would have a harder time going to school because I was undocumented. And I was still in the undocumented closet, so I couldn't quite figure out how to advocate publicly. And so I started my advocacy and organizing efforts actually around education and public education issues. I was a sophomore, like I said, when budget cuts started to hit the city of Boston in a very big way, and particularly actually started to affect my school. And I was invited to a rally at City Hall that was organized by young people, for young people, about young people. And that was really beautiful to see that young people could take a public stance for something that mattered to them. And it mattered to me, of course, And in the back of my head, I said, well, if they can do this, then I can figure out standing up for my rights as an immigrant. So I joined the Boston Student Advisory Council, BSAC, and then I joined the student immigrant movement when I finally worked up the courage to come out as undocumented. And that was in 2011 when I was invited to a rally at the Statehouse to stop immigrant rights amendments, which were being attached to the governor's budget. And I was asked, would you like to tell your story to the crowd in front of media? And something gave me enough courage to say, sure. And I told my story. It was probably the most nerve-wracking thing I'd ever done up until that point. But I did it, and it felt great. And it was an incredibly empowering thing to be able to tell my story this publicly, but know that a group of young people, these were the young people at the student immigrant movement, um, had my back. Carlos has been on the front lines of the immigrant rights movement in East Boston ever since. Now 23, Carlos has become a well-known leader within the student immigration movement, where he fights for the rights of undocumented youth. Carlos knows all too well the catch-22 that many undocumented students find themselves in when it comes to taking action for social change. Getting involved has risks, but not getting involved can be detrimental. There are many components to the way I think social change happens. The number one rule I have learned from my involvement in these various movements, from the education youth movement to the immigrant youth movement, and now transitioning into an older version of both of those movements, is that the people directly impacted have got to be at the forefront. And immigration reform has been tried in ways where immigrants who are impacted have not been at the forefront, have not been at the negotiation table, have not been the ones calling the shots about narrative strategy. And it hasn't worked. And similarly, in the education reform movement, you often have 
well-meaning parents and teachers and advocates, lawyers, who certainly have some knowledge of the way the education system works, trying to reform a system that serves young people. And I was trained under the motto of we are in the classroom five days a week, 180 days a year here in Massachusetts. Like we are the ones in the classroom, ask us. And so I, I, I'm pretty sure that this is true, that if the people that are directly impacted by an issue are not the ones spearheading a campaign to address the issue, you are less likely to pass good policies. And when and if you do pass a good policy and still don't involve those directly impacted, its implementation almost always fails and doesn't hit the mark. So that's one of the ways that I truly believe social change works. And... I think we're going to have to try different things moving forward to prevent this. It cannot just be about direct actions and mobilizations. We're going to have to do really uncomfortable and oftentimes hard work to listen to people, to lean in where racism really divides us. I mean, I, I, I stand by that statement. I think, I think racism is the number one thing that, that divides us in this country today. There's nothing like racism to derail <clears throat> a good conversation. We have to do really hard and uncomfortable work to address racism in white communities, internalized racism in the communities of color across the country. And if we don't do that, I don't think we're going to be in a much different place in four years. Carlos is at the center of the struggle for undocumented student rights. He is showing the U.S. that an investment in the education of undocumented students is a wise investment in the nation's future. But all too often, the discussion turns into a dysfunctional blame game. I was brought into organizing by a movement that in many ways was successful because we were able to convince a large number of American voters that we were the good ones, quote unquote. You know, Dreamers adopted brilliant strategies where we showed Americans that we are American, we have 4.0 GPAs, we, you know, we want to go to these schools, we want to be doctors and lawyers and scientists. And I think in many ways that appealed to a lot of Americans. You know, we still live in a country where people believe it's a meritocracy, where, you know, success and perseverance and intelligence, I think, is highly admired. And in doing that, unintended consequence of that was that we threw many other members of the undocumented immigrant communities under the bus. Because then we had built a narrative that didn't make room for our parents, right? Because if we had been brought to this country through no fault of our own, which was an, a common tagline, then whose fault was it? Our parents. And if you weren't pursuing a college degree, then you weren't worthy of staying here. And that's actually the larger number of undocumented immigrants who are low-wage workers who have no shot at going to school here and don't are, are not going to be going to school. And we've been doing a lot of work to reverse that and to figure out how we convince people in this country that undocumented immigrants, whether they're going to go to school, whether they're going to be doctors, or whether they clean your bathroom, whether they clean your home, 
whether they operate the train or bus you ride every morning, are just as worthy of being in this country and living with dignity as anybody else. In the face of a Trump administration and anti-immigrant policies, Carlos believes victory is possible. This victory, says Carlos, will require people directly impacted by immigration laws leading the charge with the participation of allies as well as multiple strategies. For activists like Carlos Rojas Alvarez, this is just the beginning. For Making Contact, I'm Anita Johnson. And that'll do it for this edition of Making Contact. To find out more about this show, go to our website at radioproject.org. Subscribe to our podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Special thanks to producers Bobby Murray, Anita Johnson, Maureen White, Dari Ruiz, Priyanka D'Souza, and Justin Rose. This show was produced by Monica Lopez and Anita Johnson. Lisa Rudman is our executive director. Producers Anita Johnson, Marie Che, Monica Lopez, and RJ Lozada. Audience Engagement Director, Sabine Blazin. Development Associate, Vera Tykolsker. And I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>